Wow. God's faithfulness is all around us. All my life, you have been faithful. We just sang it. And I'm, I'm sitting down here, and I'm looking up here. I'm sorry, this wasn't even part of what I was going to preach on, but apparently I wrote another sermon in the last five minutes. Um, I look up here, and I just see evidences of God's faithfulness everywhere. I see a bass player who a year ago didn't even own a bass. He reached out to me and was like, hey, I, I think I'd like to get involved. I think I'd like to play, play bass. I'm like, okay. You know, this young, young woman over here came two years ago, Wheaton student, and wanted to get involved in the worship ministry, and she's a worship leader, and over the last couple of years has just grown into a strong worship leader. It's just awesome. And then back here, I see a father and a son on the drums. Did you know that that's Dane's son? And I look up there, I'm to try not to cry saying this, and he's just playing with so much joy, and he looks over at his son, and his son looks at him, they're just like, yeah, yeah, God's faithfulness. And then right here, right here, that's my wife, playing guitar and singing, and right here is Rob Toll. And my wife first got involved in the worship ministry in the year 2000 at a church called Park Community Church in the city. You know who the worship pastor was? Rob Toll. Rob Toll. And a few years later, I'm becoming a Christian. I meet my wife. She introduces me to Rob. I get to know him. And I'm like, that's the dude. I want to know Jesus like he knows Jesus. I want to be like that guy. And then here we are 20 years later, and he's up here leading worship. Just God's faithfulness is all over the place, and sometimes it's smack dab right in the front of our eyes if we would just open up and see it. See you guys later. No, I'm kidding. That's <laughs> all right. I just, man, all of that just, okay, man, God is, God is here. I'm excited. My name is Matt. I serve as the worship pastor. Uh, the powers that be have made a great mistake in letting me preach, so I've got you. I've got, no. Um, I am the worship pastor here. I am crazy excited to preach. Uh, this is just awesome. Um, all right, this is the final message of our series titled uh, Together for the Gospel. We've been looking at the book of Acts and how the good news of Jesus spread throughout the ancient Near East. Our central figure has been Paul, and today we're going to look at his work specifically in Ephesus, okay, in Ephesus. In today's passage, Paul is completing his third missionary journey, and he's wanting to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, okay? So Jerry, could you show us that map? Yeah. So, so Paul, uh, he sails past Ephesus. See Ephesus sort of left center, uh, and so he's, he's trying to get back to Jerusalem, down here in the bottom right, and he actually sails past Ephesus, a place where he was for three years, and he docks in that little, that M-I-L-E-T-U-S place, that Miletus. He stops there, uh, and from there, he actually sends a, a runner back to Ephesus to grab the Ephesian elders and bring them to meet him in Miletus. And uh, when he does that, um, the, the elders show up and, and Paul gives like a recap of his life in Ephesus. It's a farewell address, okay? Um, now today's verses, they are ripe 
with teachings. There's probably 10 different topics that we could dive into, but today I wanna focus on just one, and it's critically important. Before we get into that, I'd like to ask a question. Question, how do you measure life? How do you measure life? What's the metric? Do you know we measure everything? I can get home from here to home in six minutes. Six minutes, that's without speeding. My wife and I have been married for almost 16 years, together for 19. Don't you love when people say that? Married for four years, together for 15. <laughs> like, eh. <laughs> I'm about 160 pounds. I stand at around five foot nine. This dude right here is the best quarterback we've ever seen. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's not debatable. That's the savior of Kansas City right there, folks. You can just leave that up, Jerry. <laughs> the Beatles have more number one hits than any artist in history. Sorry, kids. Beatles. All right. Do you know who has the second most hits? Don't show the picture yet. The second most hits at 19. Okay, so we got the Beatles up here, and do you know who's right here? Go ahead and show it. Mariah Carey, can you believe that? Mariah Carey, Beatles, Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey, Beatles. Doesn't make sense, but hey, that's free. That one was free. All right, look, the point is, the point I'm making, we measure everything. So how do you measure one of the most precious things in li in, that we have, our lives? How do you measure life? Let's start by looking at how the experts answer that, okay? And by experts, I'm referring to those whose viewpoints would probably be filed under the category of the wisdom of the world. And if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, you've probably noticed that God has a little bit to say about the difference between the wisdom of the world and his wisdom. We'll get into that later. First, let's look at the wisdom of the world. And let me start by saying there is a lot out there Okay, so many people are wanting to share with you their metrics for life, most of them for financial gain, but um, everyone from Forbes to Psychology Today have articles about how best to measure life. And you know something? Most of the more credible sources are relatively similar in what they say. Since we don't, since we don't have time to explore like all of them, I'm going to share with you one person's research on this topic because I think he does a good job at processing and summarizing what the leading thinkers from the world are, uh, think on this topic. His name is Darius Farrow. Darius Farrow is the author of seven books dealing with mostly productivity, wealth. He's been featured in Time, NBC. He's got around 100,000 Instagram followers. So, you know, he's not like the biggest fish in the pond, but um, he's definitely an influencer. Still don't like that word. Or he's a thought leader. Um, anyway, this guy set out to answer the question, how do you measure life? Uh, and like I said, he does a good job of summarizing the group think on this topic. Here's what he writes, and I've gone ahead and just underlined some of his keywords and descriptors so we can pinpoint and know exactly what he's saying, okay? Here we go. I have studied how the most successful thinkers of our time measure success. Are those not underlined? They're not, so I'm gonna do this. Um, the most successful thinkers of our time measure success. The answer is surprising, you rarely hear that successful people measure their life by the size of their bank account or any other conventional measure. Instead, 
people who are considered successful in the eye of society often look at these three factors. Energy, work, relationships. When I have high energy, I'm in a good mood. And when I'm in a good mood, I do better work. And when I do better work, I feel satisfied. I'm underlining those. My life, uh, uh, I feel satisfied with my life so I can give more to the people in my life and that improves my relationships. And what you'll find is the more, the more you contribute to other people's lives, the better your relationships will be as a result and that final ingredient completes the circle of life. Yeah. So it seems to me that what he is saying, what the world's wisdom is saying on how to measure life is roughly this. You have life with unsuccessful on the one end of the spectrum and successful on the other end of the spectrum over here. And then the more you improve on the major aspects of life, energy, work, relationships, the closer you get to achieving the successful end of the spectrum down here. High energy instead of low energy, good moods instead of bad moods, better work instead of lesser work, feeling satisfied instead of feeling dissatisfied, etc. All these things combined can propel you into the success zone over here. And why do we want to be there? Because it causes better relationships and that completes the circle of life. Is that resonating with anyone today? Is this how we should measure our lives? To be clear, there's a lot of good truth in there. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I want high energy. I want good relationships. I want meaningful work. I want to feel satisfied with myself. I could probably find several biblical verses to support those ideas and the importance of doing them well. In fact, upon my initial study of today's passage, I wrote down about 10, 10 traits of Paul's life in Ephesus that stuck out to me. And just about all of them, all of them can be categorized into one of those three categories, energy, work, and relationships, which leads me to the next logical question. Is it best to measure life by energy, work, and relationships? Does the biblical way of measuring life differ at all from the way the world measures life? Let's look at today's passage. Let's dig in for ourselves and pay special attention to how the Apostle Paul seems to have measured his life in Ephesus. Before we do that, I'm gonna pray, all right? Father, thank you for your word, which we get to open this morning. I pray I would handle it well. I pray that you would speak to us that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit, that you would be glorified, and that we would receive joy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is Acts 20. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, however, I consider my life worth 
nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, brought with, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit to you, I, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. All right, full disclosure. I'm gonna show you my cards. I think this passage is one of the most significant, one of the most significant in the Bible on how Christians today can measure their lives. Follow me. One of Paul's most frequent mantras was this. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. He said it to the Corinthians, to the Philippians, and to the Thessalonians. He also said something fairly similar uh, to Timothy. Paul clearly believed that his life is worth not just examining, but replicating. And if Paul, follow me here, if Paul is truly imitating Jesus, then his call to imitate him is not audience specific. It's not just for the Corinthians. It's not just for the Philippians. If he is imitating Jesus, then that call is for all of us because we all want to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? All right. Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders is the quintessential moment where he recaps and evaluates his life and work in Ephesus. He spent three years there. Ephesus was messed up. We talked about it over the last couple weeks. Spiritually dark place. Paul spent more time there than anywhere else on his journeys, which is why I think today's passage can illuminate for us how best to measure life. Let's look at those 10 traits. Remember I mentioned those 10 traits that popped out. Um, Let's look at those 10 traits uh, and show how Paul is measuring his life in Ephesus. Now, one quick caveat before we proceed. Paul was unique and had unique work, okay? So not everything he does we should expect to do. However, though our work is different, our mission is the same, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. That's the mission of every Christian, everyone who follows Jesus, that's your mission. If you need evidence for that, and you're a note taker, you can go to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul lays out five reasons why every believer's mission is to proclaim the gospel. That's 2 Corinthians 5 if you want to look it up. 
All right, first one, consistent. Paul was consistent from day one. Look at verse 18. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. In other words, I was the same Paul on day one that I am now. Three years in Ephesus, same Paul every day. Why is consistency important? Well, for starters, because it models God. God is consistent. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not, what? Change. I do not change. When we are consistent, we are trustworthy. When we're consistent, we are a safe person for people to confide in. When we're consistent and people spend time around us, they'll either walk away and think, well, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but I believe they believe it. They're walking the walk. That's what happens when we're consistent. Or if one is inconsistent, that same person walks away and might think, well, what's the point? What's the point of believing that? They don't even do what they say they're gonna do. Why would I believe that? Why would I trust that person? What's your consistency like, church? Next one, serve the Lord with humility. Paul served the Lord, he did not serve himself, and guess what? It wasn't just that Paul served the Lord, but he served the Lord with a specific kind of posture. Look at verse 19. Paul, uh, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing. Paul evangelized a lot of people, right? Paul was known, Paul was revered by some. Okay, just seeing if you're still tracking with me. Paul, Revere, all right. <laughs> here we go. I know, people are on spring break and we're not. All right, here we go. Uh, how easy it would be <laughs> for Paul to have taken a little credit for that. He evangelized a lot of people for Paul to cash in on his status a little bit. But rather, Paul says he served with great humility. There's an awesome example of this in 1 Corinthians when Paul admits that he intentionally did not use persuasive words and eloquence so that, so that the Corinthians' faith would not rest on human wisdom. And that's humility. Do you ever feel like you have to outwit somebody to get them to accept the truth of Jesus Christ? Or maybe that you have to say the right thing at the right time with the perfect amount of persuasiveness. I don't think Paul felt the need to do that, and he evangelized Asia. Serve the Lord with great humility, with tears, and in other words, with passion and emotion, and remain that way through any trial. All right, do not, the next one, do not covet. Paul didn't covet anyone's money or luxuries. Verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. In other words, Paul was genuinely committed. Paul didn't have any ulterior motives. Church, are you sure you're hanging out with that person to share the love of Christ? Or is there something else going on? Maybe they have a really sweet lake house. It's tough, <laughs> I've been there. Maybe they don't make you feel judged every time you wanna go in and check hell's temperature. Anybody know what I mean by that? 
That's my fun, fancy, cool way of saying, hey, there's sin, I'm going into it. Here I go. That's called checking hell's temperature. How hot is it? It's hot. Are you gonna get burned? Yeah. It's, is it gonna exceed your thermometer? Yes, it's hot. Why do you gotta test it? Why you gotta check the temperature? You know it's hot. Here I go. Just let me check real quick. Sometimes when we do that, some of the people we hang around, they make us feel okay about doing it. And maybe that's why we hang out with them. You know how I know that's true? Because I've been there. I've done that. Maybe that person you're hanging out with has the power to elevate your position at work. Ooh, that's a tough one, isn't it? That's a tough one. Who doesn't want a promotion? Paul had no ulterior motives. We shouldn't either. Next one, not a burden. Paul was not a burden on anyone. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Paul's presence in Ephesus, it didn't put anyone out. He was self-sufficient. He was even group-sufficient. Are you a blessing or a burden to those you spend time with? Do you pull your own weight? It matters. It mattered to Paul. Now look, I want to address something quickly. I want to I thank my wife for bringing this up because I wouldn't have thought to say this. We all must operate within the gifts, abilities, or disabilities that we've been given, that we have. My wife has a chronic illness. That's why we have a chair up here today. Because of that, she can't operate in every situation in the same way that other believers can operate. That's okay. That's not being burdensome nor is it the kind of burden that Paul is talking about not being here. Do we understand? Do we get it? Okay, that's important. All right, next one. Maybe the most important, preach Jesus Christ. Preach it, preach it, preach it. Verse 21, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Look, don't get fluffy. Don't, don't feel like you have to water it down. That's the truth. Speak Jesus. Preach Jesus. That they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And I'm not gonna lie, this is tough. This is tough, right? Show of hands, who's been there? In that moment, it's just you and a friend, and they're being vulnerable. And you sense an opportunity to finally share the gospel of Jesus, to finally speak of repentance and faith in Christ, and you feel prodded and nudged by the Holy Spirit. Your heart starts pounding. You're about to step into that unknown space where faith and consequence go boom. But before you know it, that moment passes you up. That conversation steers another way. Opportunity feels lost. Who's been there? Yeah, come on, we've all been there. You know how I know? Because I've been there. I'm a pastor, I do this for a living. I've been there, regretfully. Do we need to be strategic? Because sometimes that's what we do, right? Hey, I'm playing the long game here. I got a strategy, don't get in my way. Gospel, don't get in my way, I've got a strategy. Do we need to be strategic? Sometimes. Do we need to be sensitive to the moment? Most of the time. Do we need to step into the unknown when the Holy Spirit is urging us and prodding us to share the good news of Jesus Christ Always, 
Always, always, church, preach Christ. When you are being nudged by the Holy Spirit, step into it and preach. All right, next one. Preach to everyone. Paul preached to those like him and those unlike him. Verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks. There was no place too elite or too common for Paul to preach. He could preach down on the Gold Coast. He could preach up in Rogers Park. He could preach in Beverly Hills. He could preach in Compton. Same message, same Jesus, same repentance, same salvation. About 10 years ago, I was at, uh, working for a church in the city called Park Community Church. And we had a campus that we started in Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green is a neighborhood in Chicago that's known as for a long time, one of the roughest spots. Now today, it's been gentrified. I think that's the word they use. But for a long time in the city, Cabrini Green was rampant with gang activity, drugs. There was Section 8 housing. Uh, that actually, that uh, I have a picture of that building on my phone, the one over on the left, when they were knocking it down. But when our church started there, all of those buildings were up, um, you know, we heard gunshots every now and then. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was like, yeah, we're on mission. It was real, right? Um, so on Wednesdays, on Wednesdays at the lunch hour, uh, sometimes we would go over to Moody and we'd play basketball. And so on this one particular Wednesday, this is Wednesday at noon, all right, middle of the day, me and a guy named Jason Lalonde, he's a pastor at Park Community Church. He's still a pastor to this day. Love that guy, one of the best guys you'll ever meet, and one of those guys where you're with him for one minute and you're like, that guy loves Jesus, and he makes me wanna love Jesus, like that kind of guy. All right, we're riding in the car. We're going over, he's a heck of a basketball player too, by the way. We, uh, we're going over to Moody, and, um, and we, we, we have to drive through, I mean, we're in Cabrini Green, so we have to drive right through the heart of it to get to Moody, and we go into this parking lot, uh, and it is full of young men from Cabrini Green, from the neighborhood, probably 20, 30 young men on a Wednesday at noon hanging out in a parking lot, right? Probably, I don't know. I'm assuming probably not a lot of good going on. I don't know that. That's what I'm thinking. Here comes these two church dudes. We're about to drive right through the middle of them, right through the middle of them. No sooner that I start to cower and cringe a little bit and go like this, lock the door, Jason is like this. And he turns his head to talk to me, but he's still surveying everybody. He goes, oh man, look at all these precious people. Look at all these precious people. because God, <laughs> in that moment, bam, set me straight. Me, Matt Marone, I'm from, I'm from Kansas City, I'm from a place called Wyandotte County, all right? We call it the dot, Wyandotte County, Wyco Psycho, I'm a Wyco Psycho, all right? I'm, I'm even from a part of Wyandotte County that's like the Wyandotte County of Wyandotte County. It's called Argentine, it's predominantly Mexican, great place, but you know, I'd say it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's Cabrini Green, but I'm saying it's closer to Cabrini Green than it is Glen Allen or Wheaton. And here I am, 
I better lock this door. And here's Jason. Look at all these precious people. Church, when was the last time you went somewhere and you were the fish out of water? What are the people like that you spend time around? Do they talk like you? Do they dress like you? Do they act like you, think like you, vote like you? Is that a bad thing? Maybe not. Is that a good thing? Maybe not. The next one, do not fear. Paul continues, not fearing what lies ahead, even though he knows, he knows it won't be good. So look at verse 23. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. I can't promise that prison is in your future. However, if you choose to follow Christ, and I sincerely hope you choose it if you have not chosen today, today to follow Christ. But if you choose to follow Jesus Christ, I'm giving you a 100% guarantee that hardships are in your future. How's that sit with you? Have joy, the next one. The KJV says that not only does Paul desire to finish what God has called him to do, but he desires to do it with joy. That's just my favorite. So that I might finish my course with joy. This includes the reality of prison and hardships. Joy. Not only should you, it's not enough that you just don't give in to fear. That's not enough. That's not the call. But have joy through it all. All right, next one. Help the weak and unable. Paul helped those who were weak and unable, and he gives a reason. Verse 35, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Everybody talks about a blessed life, a blessed life. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what's that ratio like in your life? Giving, receiving. Last one, die to yourself and finish the assignment. Finally, this is Paul's circle of life statement. Remember the circle of life, the, the conclusion statement that Mr. Fro was making, the reason why he, we do all those things to complete the circle of life? This is Paul's circle of life statement. His big reason, verse 24, however, I consider my life worth what? Nothing. Nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. There's a lot of similarities between what the world says about measuring life and how Paul measured his life in Ephesus. Paul had high energy. He was tenacious. He spread the gospel throughout all of Asia. I can't imagine there's a more satisfying work than that. Paul also seemed pretty good at relationships. He wasn't a burden. He didn't covet. He was consistent in character, energy, work, relationships. These are good things. Of course we want to take care of ourselves physically and mentally to the best of our ability so that we can engage in work and work well. And we do want to be satisfied with the work that we do, and we do want to invest in relationships. All of these things are good. But I ask, 
when your head hits the pillow at night, does the idea that you would do all of these things for the sake of improvement, for the sake of feeling better about yourself, for the sake of bettering relationships, for the sake of completing a circle of life, for the sake of being able to say, I'm living my best life now. Is that really the answer that makes striving for more energy, better work, and better relationships worth it? That was a life well lived. Good job, me, how do I know that? Well, I was more able, more powerful, more energetic, more profitable, more skillful, more tough, more useful, more dynamic, more capable, more economical, more valuable, more accomplished, more productive, more loving, more, better, stronger. And the accumulation of all these traits propelled me to the successful life because I had better relationships as a result and I can consider my circle of life completed because, hey, I was the best I could be. Is that what it's about? Is that how you measure? Because church, that does not satisfy my soul. It just doesn't. That satisfies my flesh. That's not God, God exalting, that's me exalting, it's my life. I'm better, I'm more, my relationships are greater. Does that sound like Paul's mindset? No. Let's read it again, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth what? Say it loud. Nothing. Nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Paul was concerned with finishing, finishing the race that God had placed before him. Church, do you know what that's called? Do you know what that's called when God gives you something to complete and you take it and you say, okay, God, your will over mine, your life over mine, your plan over mine. I will be consistent, I will serve you, I will be satisfied with what you give, I will be compassionate, I will preach about your son Jesus, I will go where you send me, I will not fear the unknown, I will not fear the uncomfortable moments, I will not fear the persecution, I will help the weak, I will give more than I receive, no matter what comes, I will have joy in you. Church, do you know what that's called? Faithfulness, it's called faithfulness, we measure in faithfulness. God gives us a little, and when we're faithful with that, guess what he does? He gives us more. Consider Jesus' parable in Matthew 25 about three men who receive money from their master. When the master goes on a long journey, and upon his return, discovers that two out of the three men that he gave money to doubled it. They took it and they doubled it, and when the master comes to collect, he tells both of those men, well done, good and what? Faithful servant, you have been what? Faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. That's the joy. Do not think that that parable is about the men's business savviness or their good relationships or high energy or hard work. This is about faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the main point. When you're faithful, God says, well done, I'm gonna give you more to be faithful with, and then he'll invite you in to share in the enjoyment with him. Can you believe that? It's awesome, it's the truth. Are you being faithful with what God has given you? Because that's the measurement. We all have gifts that God has given, and scripture says some get more gifts than others according to our abilities. 
but he gives us gifts to use so that we might finish the task he's given us. What task is that? I'm glad you asked. Verse 24, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And if you want a beautiful, beautiful definition of what it means when we say God's, the good news of God's grace, let's take a look at Ephesians 2. This is Paul writing a letter to these same people that he's addressing in, the, in our passage today in Acts. This is Paul later on writing a letter to the Ephesians talking about the good news of God's grace. Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If that sounds good to you today, if you have not received God's grace, received salvation through Jesus, I urge you to receive that right now. Just right where you're sitting, you can just pray. Say, God, reveal yourself. Show me your truth. Show me Jesus. If you want to come down and pray, you can come during these last two songs and pray with somebody. I'd love to pray with you after the service. Be faithful and finish the race God has given you. Speak of God's saving grace through his son Jesus to your family, your friends, your coworkers, and neighbors. Be encouraged that God has prepared these works in advance. He's already prepared them in advance for you to go and do. I find great encouragement in that. All you must do is faithfully step into those works and do them. And the more times you do that, the more faith you exercise, the more faith you get. God gives you more and more joy. God gives you, and, and the more joy you experience with God. Sorry. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen people to go out and declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is, our work's this is our life's work, and it's measured in faithfulness. God has designed not a circle of life, not a circle of life for you, but a tangible, linear line of events. His glorious plan unfolding with the beginning and a Jesus Christ coming, dying, and being resurrected, and a Jesus Christ coming again, and then once and for all, exceeding joy and satisfaction experienced in, the etern in eternity in the presence of God the Almighty and his son Jesus. And God calls us to participate in his plan as we do the work he's planned for us and deepen our faith in him. Paul measured his life in faithfulness. God measures our lives in faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, that is the metric, that is the bullseye. That's where God will be most glorified in your life and you'll receive the most joy in him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you have prepared works for us in advance. Lord, would you give us the faith? You are the faith giver. Would you give us the faith to step into those moments, to take action, to preach the love, the gospel of Jesus Christ to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family. Give us a heightened sense that every day, Lord, we are on mission every day. We have a chance to respond to your call 
and to exercise faithfulness. Help us to do that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. I pray we'd be a loving church. I pray we'd have our eyes set on you. And faithfulness would be something that we think about a lot. We pray all this in your son's name. And all the church said, amen.